to the 19th episode of Tomorrow Never Knows, the podcast on the history of politics, feminism and everything else that we fancy talking about. I'm Emma London. I'm Charlotte Lydia Riley. And this is the second part of our two-part story, mm-hmm. two-part episode on um, elections. Yes. And last time we talked about uh, historical elections, I suppose. Yeah. The elections that we remember have had an impact on us, our first elections mm-hmm. and things like that. Today we're going to be more specific about more, much more recent yeah. elections. Yeah, so we're going to start by following up what we were talking about uh, last episode on the Swedish elections, uh, yes. which were in the future, in the last episode, and are in the very recent past when we're recording this one. Yes, so the election fell on the 9th of September, which mm-hmm. is Sunday, as was Sunday as we record this. It's the 12th, Wednesday the 12th of September as we record. Um, and it hasn't really been resolved <laughs> Yeah, we were perhaps optimistic scheduling our post our post election chat for a mere three days after the election had been yeah, held. This is, to be fair, quite unusual for Sweden that there's no. Well, I suppose last time in 2014 there was also a bit of a a question mark as to who was actually going to form the government, but not as much as this time because we have two two traditional blocks in Swedish politics: the red green block and the blue block mm-hmm. and neither of them have a majority and that's red and blue as reflected in british politics not yes. american politics yes. right so so it's it's the socialist green block mm-hmm. and then the conservative center liberal block right um and someone made the point the other day that uh, even the center right in swedish politics is more left wing than mm-hmm. in British politics. Right. So we had a Conservative-led alliance um, governing for eight years in the early noughties. Mm-hmm. And they invested more money in welfare than New Labour did. Wow. So, you know, all things are relative. Yeah. But they yeah. are... The, these two blocks are quite difficult and very rigid. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult to build any bridges between them. And so what... As it stands, what are what's going on in Sweden? So, who, where did the votes <laughs> fall uh, during the election? Because uh, as as a British person who doesn't have much kind of knowledge, whose who's knowledge of Swedish politics comes entirely from you, um, <laughs> uh, what I was seeing a lot of in the British media, obviously, was this huge anxiety about the Swedish Democrats. Yeah, um, and this was being cast as part of a kind of broad populist movement across the West. Um, or often across the whole world people tend to talk about this as if this is a global phenomenon and not something Mm. that's basically happening in American and Western Europe Mm. um, in a specific way Uh, and this was being cast in this way and this was, you know, the the Swedish Democrats are anti-immigration, Islamophobic and many of their members have Nazi pasts Mm. or at least some of their members more more than none of their members The party itself has roots in in the neo-Nazi movement of, of the 1980s um, and the sort of so the big British story, as far as I 
could make out was that you know this group was polling quite high and people were mm. very worried in Sweden that this group might might do well. There were people who were suggesting that they would get as much as like 30% of the vote, which I think most people who know Swedish politics mm-hmm. realised was impossible. And 30% of the vote could theoretically put them as, would put them as one of the biggest parties, right? Yes, so they are looking, they have been the third biggest party in the Swedish parliament for mm-hmm. the past four years. Uh, and they are looking as they're going to stay the third biggest party. Quite a lot of people predicted that they might surpass the Moderaterna, which is the Conservative Party, right. and become the second largest party. But that doesn't seem to have happened. There is still there's still uncertainty because they are still counting votes. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that the votes that have been cast abroad, so that includes mine, mm-hmm. are not counted until today. Oh wow! And <clears throat> uh, Swedish electoral law also means that all votes are counted twice. Okay. So they're doing a recount <laughs> of all the votes that were cast on Sunday mm-hmm. as well at the moment. So it's not crystal clear. People haven't been told mm-hmm. how many seats they will have in the new parliament. But the statistically, they seem to be pretty sure about the the mm-hmm. sort of proportion um, that that the parties have gotten and also the overseas votes tend to not make up more than one seat yeah in uh, a 349 seat parliament yeah. so it's a minor thing but we have a situation now where the red green block is and this is like the last bit of information i got this morning mm-hmm. so they were on 144 seats mm-hmm. to the conservative alliance 142 seats right so it looks as though the red-green block is going to be the largest block, but they, they're they not large enough. Mm-hmm. So um, the Sweden Democrats have this, I was going to say in the middle position, but they're obviously not because they're far right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're quite far from the middle, but they have they, they don't belong to either of the blocks. So and they the, have a kind of a free-floating... They're free-floating, and a lot of the other parties have... Uh, are refusing to cooperate with them right. and won't won't govern with their support because there could be the tacit support that you get an input in but budgets and stuff but mm-hmm. you don't actually have any ministerial positions yeah. that's the situation that ha- we have had for four years because there has been a social democratic and green party coalition mm-hmm. which is governed with the support of the left party right the left party is a former communist party okay so a lot of the other parties will absolutely refuse to to and the social democrats have been refusing to collaborate with the left party officially right forever because you know Mm -hmm. social democrats even though they're part of the democratic socialist movement they absolutely hate communists right so um and so the red green block how many parties makes up that block that's three parties now so it's the left party the social democrats and the green party and the blue block that's the Centre Party, mm-hmm. the Liberal Party, right. the Conservative Party, right. and the Christian Democrats. Okay. <laughs> Christian Democrats is, for someone who's who knows a little bit about European politics, but, but not that much, um, the presence of the Christian Democrats in European elections I always find very interesting. So that as a specific political identity, I think, is very interesting. Yeah, it's quite a new one in Sweden as well. Um, I've taught modules on this, so I should know the dates much better than I do, and we'll double-check this for our footnotes, so mm-hmm. if I get something wrong. <laughs> um, but I think they started in the 1970s, maybe the late 1960s, and mm-hmm. it's mostly the sort of free church movement, mm-hmm. so people who are outside of the Swedish church but might be Episcopalian or Pentecostal, I suppose, is, mm-hmm. is the most common. Um, Catholics. 
So it's a very small party. They're the mm-hmm. smallest party that has made uh, the parliament for mm-hmm. you know successive years. Um, but because they still enter parliament, they quite often and they've had this. Um, they're part of the alliance mm-hmm. of the conservative of, of yeah. the blue bloc. So they have had a disproportionate influence, I mm-hmm. suppose, on recent mm-hmm. Swedish politics. And the way that the blocks work, that's formal agreements between parties. Is that right? It tends to be formal agreement. It is in the conservative side. So right. they so have a all, formal agreement. That's, so for those four Do, Those four parties, parties are, are partners. Right? Yeah. Despite the fact that they are very different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the Christian Democrats, I wouldn't put it past them collaborating with the Sweden Democrats mm-hmm. because there's quite a lot of Islamophobia going on in right. the Christian Democrats as well. It's a very conservative... Um, party there's been several members who have left and joined the Sweden Democrats right. the Sweden Democrats have also got this very um, grim abortion stance these mm-hmm. days where they want to limit I think it's even down to 12 weeks that they want to limit mm-hmm. abortions mm-hmm. to in Sweden uh, which suits f- quite a few members and voters of the Christian Democrats yeah. so they have more in common than any other party um the center party which is interestingly has its own brown history in being uh you know where the nazis supporting swedes went in the 30s because it's the agrarian party originally okay um they have been the strongest advocates of saying that they will absolutely not right former government with the support of the Sweden Democrats. So you have quite a lot of tensions within these blocs and they don't necessarily agree on uh, policy. Mm -hmm. But I suppose each of them have their own profile issues. So they can appoint ministers for different departments and just sort of get on with it. That makes sense. And it benefits them broadly in elections to be seen yeah. as part of a group who might be able to take power rather than a smaller party yeah. trying to go it alone who would very off, like not gain very much influence. Yeah, so you have the you know the center party will be getting like I don't know 10 12% mm-hmm. potentially but could have a strong senior mm-hmm. bulk of ministers in a government. I mean it's the the absolute biggest party in the Swedish parliament has since 1917 been the the social democrats. Yeah. They've been the biggest party all along. They used to have a majority, or they've mm-hmm. had a majority on a couple of occasions, but not since 1968. Yeah. So when they've been out of power, which has only been for these very small small moments in yeah. Swedish history. Yeah, then... 1976 to 82, yeah. 1991 to 94, and, so... and then 2010, to... 26, 2006 to 2014. And so in those moments, Sweden's been governed by a minority government? Uh, yes. Because minority coalitions. Yes, because the the biggest party was out of power. Yeah. Because they could because they didn't have more than fifty percent and so other people were. Yeah. Has there ever been I sorry, these, these are like questions like Fisher Price my first Swedish <laughs> election questions, but I, this is really interesting because I really don't know very much about this. How is it has it does it ever occur that a party gets like an outright majority in Sweden like more than fifty percent of the vote, doesn't have to form a coalition, can just govern does that just never happen? That happened in 1968, okay. the last time, and that was the, the Social Democrats. Yeah. Um, and that was lucky for them because the uh, the left party, the communists, as they were called in those days, mm-hmm. um, polled incredibly badly in the aftermath of the Prague Spring. Of course. Um, because up until the Green Party made 
the Parliament, which they did for the first time in the 1980s and then went out for a few years, Mm -hmm. there has never been anyone that the Social Democrats could govern in a coalition with because they they don't deal with the former communists. I'm sort of hoping that that might change now because the left party is actually the old-fashioned Social Democratic Party. Right. They have the policies that Mm -hmm. the Social Democrats had in the 70s and 80s, only with added feminism and environmentalism Mm -hmm. on top. So they've kind of... Swedish politics has moved to the right, which has pulled the left party into where the Swedish Democrats used to be. Yeah, The Social Democrats used to be, not the Swedish Democrats. I suppose so, yeah. Kind of. Although you still have that thing that even our Conservative Party is more... To the left, and there's a very long spectrum of politics. Yeah. Sweden is yeah. still right over on the left, but they've made yeah. them move very marginally towards the centre, which um, has pulled all of the parties more yeah. into this space. Yeah, the, the big thing about the left party is that they dropped the communist prefix in 1990 and right. are a democratic socialist party, right? Um, these days, and they're not loyal to any other foreign regime, which is why they were not allowed in government. I mean, handily, you know. Good not timing. Having, not having any other foreign regimes to be loyal to is quite a, exactly makes it makes it that quite an easy decision. I yeah, imagine. So, yeah, cool. Okay, and so when a government is formed, and so um, you were saying you had said earlier that it's not that Sweden is governmentless at the moment. This is not like a, a Belgian situation where uh, Belgium had that very long time. Oh period, yeah, we're not five hundred days. Five hundred days with no parliament whatsoever, no government at all, um, which I think led many Belgian people to to sort of start to think maybe we don't need her. Yeah, like, I think that's really dangerous, isn't it? It seems like a very alarming... Yeah, uh, particularly in countries that still have a royal family. Yes, exactly. But they, <laughs> you know, it's not like that because in Sweden, the existing government, the government that was in place before the election, is still in place and will be in place until yes. an agreement is arranged. They obviously don't make, take any decisions. Yes. But in the event of a national crisis yeah. or catastrophic event then we have a prime minister and you still have for example a foreign minister so if anything happens where sweden needs to like yeah anything make statements i presume so but also because it's sweden there's like this whole army of civil servants i mean sweden is built on the civil Mm -hmm, service mm -hmm. and experts non-political experts so i'm sure that things are sort of plodding along but there aren't there aren't going to be any decisions there aren't going to be any laws made it's kind of akin to I wrote a piece a little while ago on Perda and what Perda oh, yeah. means in Britain and kind of akin to that right like the government is chugging along and there are pl- people in place to do things if necessary but there's no new decisions no mm. big political they can't take the opportunity now just to slide in a little bit of legislation because they're worried about a conservative government coming in or yeah anything no like that. It's, no it's kind it's of preserving the, the status quo right. as it was <laughs> and how long do they have to try to form a government before and what happens if they don't form one uh so the there is going to be election to um the positions of speakers in the Swedish parliament mm-hmm. and they are much easier to elect because they are traditionally and there aren't any actual legal rules about this but traditionally they are <laughs> one from each of the three biggest parties yeah. and those are clear so that's the social democrats the the conservative moderate party and the sweden democrats and right. that those are the people who had the same positions in the previous parliament. And would it probably be the same... Would it normally be the same people as well? Uh, I've heard rumours that there might be different social democrats, okay. if not And what's the gender else. balance of those people at the moment? Oh, I don't know. I know that the two 
I think actually they might have all been men. Because mm. I was going to say, I assume the Swedish the, Democrats. The Sweden Democrats have, have only got men. <laughs> <laughs> so that's no hope. And I'm pretty sure that the moderate party also had a man. Mm. I think that was Tobias Bielstam. So yeah, they were all men, which is quite unusual for Sweden. I was going to say, it, it feels unusual. I mean, you're saying that there's no there's no laws about this and you've know, seen across the world recently, or again, across kind of the Western world, that lots of things that we think of as being having formal things governing them in politics actually are just based on convention and yeah. when people just want to throw things up in the air whether that's having a referendum or you know doing yeah. all the things Trump is doing that you suddenly realize there aren't laws but it seems funny in the context of Sweden that there isn't a rule about yeah uh, gender equality at least you know out of 3 having one female yeah it's strange that the the social democrats doesn't have a female speaker but i suppose they have had female speakers in yeah. the past yeah um and in 2014, there was quite a lot of noise being made in Parliament about the fact that the Sweden Democrats, who are not perceived as of as a democratic party, by right. particularly the left party, but also other members of the Red Green Bloc, mm-hmm. that they were going to have a speaker, because that's you know mm. the guardian of democracy in mm-hmm. Parliament. So how do you deal with that when mm. there is lots of of MPs with immigrant backgrounds yeah. who uh, one of the speakers want to get, you know, deport. Mm. <laughs> um, but still, convention won the day, and, and they, the they Sweden got Democrats got got one of their speakers. See, one of the things, one of the ways in which the reporting of the Swedish election has obviously been very shaped in Britain by this narrative, constant narrative around populism, mm. is that in my reading, and admittedly reasonably cursory reading of the news coverage of this, partly because I knew I could just come and ask you, um, <laughs> I. To me, it seemed like the Swedish Democrats, it was it was this kind of radical new rise right now, right? The kind of anxiety about them being in the government, in the British press, seemed to be like, you know, this is this kind of new force, this new thing. But So I was actually quite surprised to find out that they'd actually been part of the government in Parliament, already, yeah. part of Parliament already, and that they'd already had this position, and, and that, they'd, you know, now they'd had a Speaker yeah. role. Um, and it, I think it shows how... In, They're a formal functioning party. Yeah. Unfortunately. I think I think it shows how I think in certainly some of the coverage that I read in Britain and some of the discussions I heard on the radio were very much focused on this as like this new populist threat mm. rather than still alarming still definitely something to do with this shift right and this anti-immigrant um, anti-immigrant kind of movement across Europe but also you know it, it got slightly longer roots I think than sometimes being presented. And I yeah. think mainly because people in Britain don't know very much about Swedish politics and firstly assume that everyone in Sweden is very left-wing. Yeah. And that it's this kind of, you know, there's always this thing on the left in Britain that Scandinavia generally is held up as being this kind of socialist utopia. Yeah. And there was um, a very good article actually in Vice, um, which I do not normally recommend articles in Vice because in many ways it's a terrible publication <laughs> who has awful policies on sexual harassment. But... Um, they had a very good article a few years ago now about being a person of colour in Sweden. And they, it was like, I think a cross between a photo essay and an article, and they, they followed sort of four or five people, mm. um, little interviews and pictures with four or five people who kind of said, well, no, of course, you know, of course there's racism in Sweden, yeah. of course there's these problems, there's this anti-immigration language and things. But I remember people reading it in Britain and being like, this was brand new information to them, yeah. that, that Scandinavia might have any problems along that exactly. line. Exactly. It's it can be quite frustrating to um, watch and read these things. I tend to stay away from reportage. I also come from Malmo, which has been painted as the hellhole of mm-hmm. I don't know northern 
Europe or even the northern hemisphere which which is bizarre because obviously out from our discussions of Malmo I have now decided that Malmo is the socialist utopia yeah. um, <laughs> unfortunately Malmo looks as though he might actually go to the blue block for the first mm. time in 24 years <laughs> so might that might all change um, although a third of the population voted for the social democrats mm-hmm. the, the council might go elsewhere but um yeah, it's, it can be incredibly frustrating and I think it offers us, the privileged people in the north, a bit of an insight into what it must be like mm-hmm. to come from other parts of the world with other yeah. non-Anglo languages and mm-hmm. how that is being portrayed. I mean, I have friends who have roots in Pakistan who are mm-hmm. constantly frustrated by depictions of Pakistan, yeah. um, which I can sort of, I mean, I could sympathise with before, but I can sort of really yeah. feel the anger. <laughs> these days it's 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 become a very simplified narrative and i think a lot of it has played into the hands of the sweden democrats Mm -hmm. um i think there is a confirmation bias i think people have been expecting them to do so well they have been expecting to do so well and that somehow makes it more likely that they are going to do well Mm. because this is a party that 10 15 years ago people would have been extremely embarrassed about voting for Mm -hmm. you wouldn't tell anyone Mm -hmm. Um, because they weren't perceived of as being a proper parliamentary party. Mm-hmm. There are s- several things in their manifestos and party programme that is, you know, severely anti-democratic. Mm-hmm. Um, so putting the spotlight on them the way that the press has done, and particularly the press from abroad, mm-hmm. but also the Swedish press, but obviously you're not going to be able to, to you know keep up with that unless mm-hmm. you read Swedish but um I think it I think it's it's a dangerous precedent and I think what's interesting in comparison is the complete lack of discussion about the left party mm. which is also yeah. resurgent and it's bigger this yeah. year than it has been before and is very much I suppose kind of populist mm-hmm. leftist in its own way yeah in its own way and it's you know, I think they could have probably been a very good added element to lots of these stories mm. to show that the, there is polarisation mm. in Swedish politics as there is everywhere. Yeah, yeah. But it's not necessarily just about anti-democracy and anti-immigration. There's also been a very good, very recent publication, which we'll put a link to mm-hmm. in our footnotes on the website, which shows that the Sweden Democrats have surged in... Uh, the polls, in particular in places that have suffered since the Conservative Alliance governed Sweden in 2006 mm-hmm. to 2014 mm-hmm. with the cuts that they did to the welfare services. Mm-hmm. So they spent more money on welfare than New Labour did, mm-hmm. but they still cut mm-hmm. and privatised lots of things. And that has impacted particularly rural communities yeah. in deindustrialising communities. Mm-hmm. And they are the people who vote for the Sweden Democrats. Right. So it's less to do with immigration mm-hmm. than people are also led to believe. Yeah. The people who vote for the Sweden Democrats are not people who live next door to immigrants. Mm-hmm. They are people who have had their jobs or livelihoods taken yeah. away from them by recession. Which is, I mean, I think one of the reasons why the, the right party is being focused on in Britain and in the British kind of media is because people like making analogies with what they know, right? And so what they are seeing overseas is something that to them seems to map Britain with the rise of UKIP. Mm. And 
very similarly i mean i come from an area in in the country i come from the friends where there's very high there was a very high level of support for brexit there's very high it's very conservative um peterborough had national front councillors during the 1990s um you know there's been or they certainly had a the national front won a proportion of the vote in in 1997 even which are the you know much worse precursors to the bmp the the even more fascist even more violent precursors Mm. to the bmp and UK, and again, I think you know it's it's is that thing, isn't it? Of actually, many of the people who support these parties in Britain also live in some of the whitest areas of the country. Yeah. Um, and partly, it's anxiety about immigration, which is fueled by the fact that they don't actually know what that looks like. They don't yeah. really have experience of it. But it's also actually they're voting because of other reasons. And it's difficult to walk the line because, on one hand, I'm wary of falling into the trap that's happened a lot in America with trying to explain the rise of Trump. Yeah, this is about economic anxieties rather than racism. Well, clearly, no. Most of the people who voted for Trump, it's racism. Yeah, but at the same time, it's it's really important not to just generalise that experience yeah. and just map it onto different places. And I think it can be two things at the same time. Yeah, I think there's definitely what this research shows is that you know immigration is one of the key issues for people who vote for the sweden democrats Mm -hmm. but their issues with immigration is more to do with economic deprivation but i also think so mama has always been a thorn in the side of swedish conservative Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) uh, parties and politicians and supporters because mama is a traditionally very red socialist Mm -hmm city it's the the cradle of swedish social democracy to start with and anarchy and you know (laughs) communism um i grew up in an area where all of the streets were named after old social democratic politicians Mm -hmm. um it's it's a very strong and deep connection and it's it has been a predominantly working class city Mm -hmm. so i think mama has always been quite a handy target for people who want to talk about how terrible it is i mean i know several people who i grew up with uh, who came from from the sort of posher towns surrounding Malmo, who were really scared of being in Malmo after dark mm-hmm. because of all the crime and stuff mm-hmm. that they it's it's perceived to be happening there, and it's you know it's uh, yeah Malmo has its problems. It's mm-hmm. a it's a very small but very big city mm-hmm. in a way because it's on the border, so it ha- it has a small population but big city problems. But a lot of these things have been blown out of proportion mm-hmm. because people kind of project their fears yeah. onto mama and it wasn't it didn't used to be about immigration it used to be about just you know like it wasn't about skin color because yeah. you might as well be mugged by someone who was really pale mm-hmm. yeah but it's kind of in the last 20 years it's been the discussion has kind of changed from the class perspective to, yeah. to the ethnicity perspective yeah. Which has kind of happened, I think, has happened a lot with right-wing commentators who try and say these things about Britain as well. And actually, you know, obviously you always get this from American commentators, right? The very famous moment when Fox News said that Birmingham was a no-go zone. Yeah. Uh, We have so many no-go zones in Malmö, according to the press. I mean, this is there's this very right-wing commentator, uh, um, uh, Peter Sweden, right? This very right-wing tweeter who's obsessive about how... We're not going to link to him in the footnotes. No, we're not going to link to him in the footnotes. <laughs> but, you know, really obsessed with this and feeds into right-wing American narratives about how uh, welfare and social democracy leads to immigration and violence. Mm. And so there was this thing about, you know, Birmingham is a no-go zone. There was very recently a piece in the New York Times, which, again, we're not going to link to, but which said that Tower Hamlets was essentially a no-go zone. And this piece was extraordinary because it was talking about Tower Hamlets 
Which is a council area council in, London, area in London, London, central London. So it's the area that I lived in in London for 10 years before I moved to Newham, which is next door. Um, it's where Queen Mary University is. Yeah. So we both know it reasonably well as, as an area. It's also an area which has what's in Tower Hamlets, Victoria Park, a very nice large Victorian park, uh, Brick Lane, which is a famous street to go and have a curry on. Mm. Um, it stretches down to the Thames, so you can it, places like Wapping, it's very famous from the. Um, uh, it used to be very famous for its Amy Winehouse connections. It's as well, Tower Hamlets it? did, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's the kind of yeah Rotherhithe and places like this. I can't remember Rotherhithe might be on the south of the yeah, water, but um, <laughs> Wapping, which was very famous, it used to be where uh, newspapers were printed, or it's, yeah. um, it's where lots of strikes in the 1980s. But it's, it's a diverse area, it's a very big area, it has Canary Wharf in it as well, that's mm. the other thing, which is, you know, the banking centre of Britain. Um, there was a piece in the New York Times which talked about it basically as a no-go zone, and this journalist was writing... Constantly terrified by the sight of hijabi women, mm. um, but also just making ridiculous leaps and assumptions. So, for, at one point, he maintained that there was Sharia law in Tower Hamlets because there was a sign outside the mosque saying you couldn't drink alcohol. The sign outside the mosque saying you couldn't drink alcohol was actually one of those police signs where mm. there's loads of places in London where police say you can't drink alcohol. It's a, it's like an antisocial behaviour thing. It's got absolutely nothing to do with religion, but he kind of put the two things together. He also talked repeatedly about like the call to prayer and the bells from the mosque ringing up um, Whitechapel Road, which there is a there's a large East London mosque on, on Whitechapel mm. Road, but Whitechapel Road is one of the busiest roads in Britain. You can't hear anything on that street. Like, you definitely well, you can't can hear, hear car horns. That's yes, basically it. I mean that's it. So like it, it was this ridiculous, and you know it got kind of ripped apart on social media, but also shared a lot, which is mm. obviously kind of the intention of these pieces. Yeah, I read it, and it was just so. But it was again. It's this attempt, and you know, the New York Times is not is not some right wing blogger. But no, it's, it's attempt to. Well, one, it's just writing a salacious story, mm. but it also it shows, and that again, this idea that you can kind of map. Well, one that you can come as an outsider to a place and immediately understand it, mm. which is what British journalists are trying to do. You know, when they go to um, Sweden and talk about the election, but also the idea that you can map concerns that you have about your own area or your own kind of onto other places unproblematically. Yeah. Meanwhile, places like Hungary, which has seen an incredible shift to the right, mm. uh, and Orban as president has done I mean, awful things like um, really attacking Central European University, for example, which was yeah. set up by Soros's, George Soros. They're no longer um, allowed to teach gender studies, so no. anything to do with gender from this autumn term and onwards. Which is just incredible. And they've attacked them in other ways as well. I think they're trying to reduce visas and things. Yeah. He's had incredibly anti-migrant uh, rhetoric. He's very anti-women's rights. And, and you know everything you would expect from a far-right um, prime minister. He also at one point bizarrely singled out part of Southampton as being an example of the sort of hellhole of... Uh, again, a no-go area and a hellhole of immigration. But it was the part of Southampton, St Mary's. He said white people can't go to St Mary's. St Mary's is where the um, football ground is. Mm. So like 30,000 white people go to St Mary's every Saturday. It's not <laughs> it's the opposite of a no-go area. But, um, you know, the, the, the British press, West, Western European press, American press is less interested in that narrative because yeah. it doesn't seem like something they can map their own experiences onto, but also they, they're not, you know, Hungary's not seen as a country that, they're interested in it's seen as a... or that we can identify with which yeah. is also quite bizarre i mean it's it's um central european yes. to start with exactly it's here I mean, it's, it's next not to Austria. far away it's not yeah um and has a long history of 
you know, the European integration. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it was it's a sort the of extreme of lack of knowledge, prior knowledge yeah. in a lot of these stories and yeah. assumptions made by the media and observers. Which you know, lack of knowledge isn't a thing to be ashamed of. Nobody knows everything. No, but it's the combination of not understanding how different contexts work and just feeling the confidence that you can just extrapolate yeah. wildly. Yeah. Um, there's a pe- there's a famous um, fame, not famous at all famous among a very small group of academics <laughs> a Twitter account called I think it's Brit Pol Prof PhD oh yeah and it's a, like a parody of a particular type of British political scientist academic and it it parodies lots of things about this type of figure. But every time there's an election around the world or any time there's kind of a political event around the world, it always tweets, um, the, this supposedly this man uh, always tweets like, I am now an expert in, so mm. I am now an ex- expert in the German elections and the AFD and Angela Merkel, or I am now, ele-, so he, you know, he tweeted, I am now an expert in Swedish democracy. Mm. Because there is this sense that there is a certain sort of commentator and journalist who just feel that they can... Yeah. Just opine about topics that they know literally nothing about. Yeah. It's a kind of an arrogance and a privilege all kind of tied up together. Shall we move on to Brexit? Because well... this is... <laughs> I mean, the, the tenuous link is that I'm a Swedish citizen in the UK, so affected by Brexit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And actually, you know, there's a very good link with things that people feel they can just opine on with literally no knowledge. Yeah. Um, we've already kind of you know, just speaking a little bit about UKIP then and about the way that they've been perceived by the media. Um, as someone And blown up by the media as in, in exactly like the same amplified way, right? um, yeah. to an enormous extent. I mean they they until Douglas Carswell defected from the Tories, they didn't have an MP, but no. Caroline Lucas is an MP for the Green Party and you never see the Green Party anywhere no. remotely in the press. I mean the Green Party didn't get to go on the debates. Yeah. It's incredible. You know, Farage is still... I mean, actually a little less now, but, you know, for a long time, Farage was all over... He seems to be mostly all over the US at the moment. I think that's more the problem than... It's not that the... It's not that he doesn't get the invitations. It's just that he's not geographically here. You know, I remember when we had the debate about whether Nick Griffin should be allowed on Question Time. And he was on Question Time, sitting next to Bonnie Greer... And at the time, the argument was, you know, we'll let him on question time and we'll shine light on his arguments, you know, we'll show that he's an idiot. And of course, it doesn't work like that. The people who vote BMP, the people who vote UKIP, most of them are not doing so because they've sat down and weighed up all of the arguments and they're open to convincing. And and that's, I'm not being patronising about those voters. Most people who vote for any political party don't sit down and read all of the manifestos and make no, a choice. No, no. I mean, I, I have, I actually have a, I have... It can be quite a dangerous thing to do because you'll find it very difficult to vote for any party. Yeah. I mean, I have friends, actually, who <laughs> arrived at university quite apolitical and did take quite an evidence-based approach to their voting and kind of mm. sat down and read them. And it's, you know, it, it's probably... I very rarely read the manifestos, even as a political historian. Mm. Um, and it's a good thing to do, and we should do it. But it isn't really how people vote. So the idea of no. kind of shining a light on Nick Griffin and making his supporters... It's also this kind of... I mean, this has come up again, hasn't it, with with uh, Steve Bannon, whether mm. Steve Bannon should have been debated at this New York Times festival thing. This kind of arrogance, again, in the people who are doing this debating and question-asking, that like they will be the people to show these ideas up for what they are. You yeah. know, people have been arguing against racism 
yeah. for a long time. You know, why do you think that you're going to be the person? Yeah, the who, problem with Hitler wins? wasn't that he was on a post. No, exactly. The problem with the problem with these people is not that like no one, you know, no one was good enough at debating at Oxford that they could just like push them over with a single question and everyone will clap and say how clever you are and how stupid your opponent is. That's not how any of this works. And it's quite interesting as well. I once had um, a colleague who had a student who was, uh, was a member of some sort of far-right mm-hmm. organisation in Britain and very, very much into uh, conspiracy theories as quite mm-hmm. a lot of people on the far right and the extreme far left as well. But yeah. I mean, the far right has, has its own set of conspiracy theories. Um, and I remember spending quite a lot of time talking about how do you actually counteract mm-hmm. yeah. the conspiracy theories and set preconceived ideas yeah. from that part of that is being... Um, encouraged mm-hmm. and yeah. um, by these organisations because you know their whole shtick is that traditional mass media covers things up and that mm-hmm. particularly like mm-hmm. the liberal university yeah. will not be a place where these ideas are going to be shared because we're all brainwashed absolutely so it's it's it does have added elements of <laughs> of issues and a lot of people are getting quite immune to what i think you and i would think of as fairly reasonable fact checking mm-hmm. standards that's the thing and it is important to do that work it's obviously important that if people are making claims that someone sits down and fact checks things and says, well, actually, no, this is not the case and these things aren't true. And like maybe eventually you would get through to someone, at least on, on minor points, right? Mm. Sometimes people will concede on a that something's factually inaccurate, but often they won't. Mm. And more generally, the, yeah, the idea that kind of exposing these ideas, and this is always the argument that producers make for bringing Farage on their TV show, that, you know, it's important to hear both sides or that by but hearing his you know how are we going to counter his argument if we haven't heard it and it's like well we have heard it we've heard it over and over again we know what these arguments are yeah they're very disingenuous about what their arguments are so you kip and farage will swear blind that he's not racist and he's not anti-immigrant and he just cares about british sovereignty and he only cares you know he actually wants more non-european migrants to come in and all of the rest of it so there isn't a way that you can have these arguments and, that, and giving people airtime and you know and kind of Obviously, you know, the person who called the referendum is David. David Cameron made a choice to call the referendum largely because he wanted to stop any more conservative defections to UKIP. Mm. But one of the reasons why UKIP seemed possible to take those MPs in defections was because they were blown up so much by the media as a threat. I mean, Douglas Carswell is a really odd and interesting choice. I I read his book. He wrote a book called Rebel. Um about his kind of political career and about his ideas about UKIP. And he's a very, very unusual person. And he's coming from a very unusual ideological place, actually. Um, How? Well, in that he's not... He isn't a rabid... There are are so many problems with his ideas, and he is, I think, you know, he's very conservative, but he's not a kind of rabid rabid anti-immigration person. He devotes quite a lot of time in the book to being very angry about... Farage talking about people coming to Britain to get AIDS treatment because his father was one of the doctors in Uganda who was one of the people who discovered AIDS. Okay. He grew up, he has one of these classic imperial childhoods. He grew Mm. up in Uganda, his dad was a medic. Um, 
and so he's really really angry at this idea and he you know even in this book which is published several years after this or a year or something after this happened he spends time talking about this lots of his anxieties around the kind of like he genuinely i think does believe in sovereignty he genuinely is anxious about he's a liberal with a small l you know who and a kind of moving over towards even libertarianism he doesn't want british he wants britain to be able to have choices and everything he's mm. that kind of market market oriented person but you know one that's not that's not really the position of, of ukip but also that's not necessarily that's not why most people vote for them no you know he he was an odd he was not person to be in the conservative party he's not person to be out of the conservative party you know you can't really build policy around one person defecting mm. which is essentially what cameron did um but then i've also been really frustrated because i'm from one of the areas that voted very heavily to leave yeah i've also been very frustrated with the coverage of that Mm. and with those groups because there's an exotification yes of exactly. the lead voter and there's a kind of um, there's a kind of a group of people you know voted to leave many of whom again like talking about the, the swedish democrat supporters many of the people who voted to leave um were people who felt that they had been um not benefited from lots of things of EU membership, but also people who are frightened of immigration. And it's not just that they feel like they haven't benefited from it. I, I I feel like there's a lot of them... There's a strong sentiment of having things to actually taken yes, away. Yes, exactly. And some of that is absolutely... Some of that is ra- is about racial... Mm. Well, racism. I was going to say racial anxiety. Racial anxiety is a euphemism. Some of that is racism. Some of that is people... And, and people believing things that aren't really true. So thinking, mm. for example, that the reason there's no council houses in South Lincolnshire is because they're being taken by immigrants. That's not true. There are no council houses because Margaret Thatcher sold most of the council houses. Mm. You know, but there, there's these kind of narratives which which are racist but are not at the heart of it about race. They're about something else. They're mm. about being anxious about housing or feeling like you don't have enough resources and things. There was a, a really interesting story in the guardian about peterborough the biggest city to where i'm from which which in the guardian was presented as this like interesting fun story about a primary school in in peterborough where every child spoke a language other than english at home and in the guardian this was like a lovely community story you know all of these kids speak english in the school it's really diverse mm. um you know the school does help with parents and things like this and but they were they talked briefly about the fact they really needed more resources to, to help parents who maybe sometimes didn't speak English. Obviously, that was reported very differently in other papers and was seen very much as this like terrible sign of immigration taking over Peterborough mm. um, and echoing, again, ideas about it. Lindsay Hanley wrote a really good piece about Brexit. Um, Lindsay Hanley's an author who's written really great stuff. She wrote a book called Estates about um, housing estates and another one called Respectable about class. And she wrote a really good piece about um, people feeling like they've been kind of ignored and left behind by government and why people might vote um, why people might make choices to vote against um, the status quo even yeah. if they're not really sure about it but the other problem with that narrative and I, I you know I agree with a lot of that and like my experience of where I grew up is is like that that people feel you know it they're areas where they feel kind of they've been ignored by the government and they're making a stand or they genuinely believe things will be better when we leave the EU or they have particular concerns with EU membership, most of which are not really based in fact, but, you know, and have been kind of flared by the Daily Mail. But actually, obviously, when you look at the figures, it's not necessarily that... It isn't necessarily just poor working-class people who voted leave. No. Right? Most people in England voted leave. Mm. Um, in Scotland... 
Northern Ireland. Well, Northern, yeah, Scotland and Northern Ireland voted Remain. Yeah. Gibraltar voted Remain. But most people voted Leave. You know, the constituency my dad lives in, which is a very affluent constituency, that voted Leave. Mm. Um, actually, the biggest split seems to have been age-related. 18 to 24-year-olds, year 71% rema- voted Remain. 65 plus, 64% voted Leave. Mm. And in fact, actually, it was only everybody below 50, the majority voted Remain. And everyone above 50, the majority voted Leave. Yeah. So there's, some, there's other things going on There's a on generational well. thing rather than a... Yeah. locational thing there's also uh, YouGov also kind of they they polled based on political party and education so um, 70% of those who only had GCSE education or lower voted leave um, almost 70% 68% of people with a degree voted remain so there's a big shift with education mm. and then also um, a majority of conservatives voted leave and obviously a majority of UKIP. 5% of UKIP supporters voted Remain. Well, that's quite fascinating. <laughs> Which it just seems really... That must be a very lonely position to take in, in that party. Incredibly bizarre. I don't... I mean, I presumably that's the people who are just super racist but don't want to leave the EU. People who are attracted <laughs> to UKIP only on their race policies and not yeah. to do with their European policies. 20% of Green voters voted to leave and 80% voted remain yeah there is that radical um anti-eu thing as well isn't there i mean this is the thing about the swedish left oh, the le- party the lexit the lexit yeah. Is, yeah the swedish left party apparently still has in its manifesto that it wants to leave the eu wow but i mean it's not a policy that they're pursuing the thing labor and the lib dems again according to this yougov poll labor and the lib dems were both so labor was 65% remain and lib dems were 68% remain mm. so they were both very very similar like with but with a with a strong majority for for remain whereas the so conservatives now was told Jeremy Corbyn that yes it's interesting isn't it and i guess you know one of the important things there is how that maps onto constituencies mm. that um but that's based on who you that's based on who you voted for in 2015 yeah as well um, and obviously in 2015 Corbyn wasn't leader no so there might be an argument that Corbyn supporting Labour supporters maybe True. voted leave but yeah. well give us a second referendum and we'll find out <laughs> I was reading yesterday actually that the this European research group the really the really right wing leavey conservatives given themselves this very sensible name but the ones mm. who just want to go um, apparently yesterday they were discussing getting rid of Theresa May. Oh, really? The Conservatives have this insane policy for how to get rid of their leader. It's completely ridiculous. Um, mm. They, It's based on an anonymous letter system. <laughs> like, for people who don't know this, or people outside Britain, it really is very, very odd. So they have to hand in letters to the party chairman. It's the chairman, I think, isn't it? I think it? so, yeah. And when he has more than... The, when he has the right number of letters then you have a leadership contest. Mm. But he doesn't tell anybody how many letters he has at any given time. So giving your letter in can be used to kind of pressure the leader, but it's quite high-risk strategy, because if everyone gives in a letter, then you'll have to have a leadership campaign. Mm. And so there's a huge amount of um, discussion about the Conservative, kind of when... The, in, in Labour, you know, people just sort of challenge. This is, yeah. you know, but in the Conservatives, because it's based on this ridiculous secret letter policy it's very difficult to know when a leadership campaign will actually happen but apparently the erg group which is 50 mps mm. so would be in if easily enough i think they only need 20 letters or something um is easier easily enough to have a leadership campaign i think i'm at the point in british politics now where i have 
like I want it to get more chaotic <laughs> and that's a terrible thing and I think part of me doesn't but I think I'm genuinely at the point now where I'm like yeah let's let's have a leadership election in the Conservative Party now let's have another general election before we leave yeah who cares this we've only got another anyway. four months or so five months let's ago. go for it let's have a general election in January <laughs> and then whoever like takes in charge I've I've argued for a long time for annual elections anyway I'm at heart a chartist <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just straying into anarchist uh... election every year keep the summer recess so you only basically have six months a year where you can do anything so it becomes <laughs> a, like a battle to just bring in as many policies as possible you just have to throw loads of things at the wall and see what sticks Oh my goodness, right. just... there I was thinking that we all had election fatigue last year and it's, it's okay, alright, well. I was talking about polling stations last week, I got excited about voting. Yeah, no it is good, I enjoy voting, um, I just wish other people voted a little bit more like me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, on that note, you have a poem I, I think. I do have a poem, I've got a poem by Maggie Smith, not, not the Maggie Smith who is a Downton Abbey uh, dowager, but a poet called Maggie Smith. <laughs> um, it's called Good Bones, and it's a poem that I come back to quite a lot when bad things happen, basically, uh, when the world seems terrible or when horrible things have happened, like right-wing parties have got big chunks out of elections. Um, so she starts the poem, Life is short, though I keep this from my children. Life is short, and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways, a thousand deliciously ill-advised ways I'll keep from my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. And at the end of the poem, she says, I'm trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real shithole chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. So it's just a poem about how terrible the world is, but how there's always the potential for change. Yeah, and I think that's something that's good to remember as well, that none of these things... I mean, we hope that the problem with the far right... Or the rise of the populist far rights or populist rights, I suppose, mm-hmm. uh, of its various forms is that, that there could be some lasting changes Absolutely. to the systems. But it, at the same the time... Thing. And sometimes it feels like optimism is a privilege. Yeah. And that some people don't get to be optimistic. But I still think, you know, this place could be beautiful. Yeah. It's good to keep that in mind, I think. Yeah something to strive towards don't mourn organized like the famous swedish american uh trade unionist joe hill said absolutely um and we have recommendations this week that are possibly uh something to divert attention from i think yours more than mine maybe i don't know i think our recommendations are very cheerful and happy this week okay (laughs) (laughs) you start then uh, so this week we're recommending sequels. Yeah. That's right, isn't it? And so um, so really good sequels to things. You know, there's always the thing that Godfather 2 is better than The Godfather. Men tell you this a lot. <laughs> so, um, so my sequel that I'm recommending is Mamma Mia 2. So Excellent. Good Swedish theme exactly, as well. Exactly. Uh, as we found out, your dad went to school with Benny Anderson. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. <laughs> so a good, um, yeah, good podcast connection. Um I loved the first Mamma Mia. When Mamma Mia came out, when Mamma Mia 2 came out, everyone was saying, you know, I don't know anyone who saw the first Mamma Mia, but everyone's so excited about Mamma Mia 2. I loved the first Mamma Mia. I went to see it in the cinema on, like, the first week of release. I sang along to everything. (laughs) I love ABBA. Mamma Mia 2 is, if anything, I would say, as a conservative estimate, a hundred times better than any other film I've ever seen. (laughs) It... (laughs) At a conservative estimate. It's so good. It just made me so happy. I laughed. I went to see it with a female friend. 
I laughed continuously throughout the entire film. And at the end of the film, she turned to me and said, it was amazing watching it with me because every time a man came on screen and did anything whatsoever, I just burst out laughing. (laughs) It is just, I just loved it. I loved it so much. You have to go and see it. I should, maybe I should see the first one first. Yeah, I think, you know, I think a a good, you know. This is the thing about Abba, it's difficult to become a prophet in your home city, so. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, but... maybe seeing Abba through the eyes of non-Swedes will be... Well, we all always just thought they were a bit sort of naff. Exactly, whereas we think it's quintessential. And they were capitalist Swedish. and stuff, and that didn't really wash very well in Sweden in the 70s. Um, no. Not that I have memories of that myself, but that's the stories that I hear. Uh, yeah, my parents listened to the Beatles, not Abba. But yeah. And my sequel is maybe a bit more political. Um, yeah. because it's the uh, the good fight which is the sequel to the good wife which mm-hmm. ran on channel four in the uk for years yeah quite a lot quite a long time actually and that's kind of connected to both this week's topic and the next episode topic mm-hmm. it's now set in so it's, it's lawyers in chicago yeah um, strong women lawyers. Well, it's a spin-off with Diane. Yeah, Diane Lockhart from The Good Wife. And Diane was one of the best things. There's a number of very good Diane gifts. We'll put yeah. a Diane gif on the uh, on the footnotes. Yeah, and it's good. It's it's an incredibly anti-Trump mm-hmm. TV series mm-hmm. uh, in quite many brave ways. Uh, yeah, and it's quite interesting. It's it's very much to do with organisation rather than mourning, uh, yes. but a little bit of mourning as well. Um, yeah, and I, it's, it's been really excellent. I actually, I'm starting to think that I prefer it to The mm. Good Wife, and I always really liked The Good Wife. Yeah. And I really liked Alicia Florick, who was the main character, the main very flawed character of The Good Wife. She doesn't feature at all in the sequel. Yeah. But it's... It doesn't have some of the slightly more irritating elements of The Good Wife. Yeah. Basically the kind of, the Alicia-Peter relationship, which could sometimes get quite trying, Yeah. isn't in it. It also doesn't have Carrie in it, which yeah. does for me make it slightly less good because <laughs> I was a big Carrie fan. But the characters who are in it are brilliant, and some of the um, some of the characters who've crossed over are some of the best. So Diane Lockhart, um, Eli's daughter, yeah, um, her name who who was a private investigator in this one, and also I think um, hasn't Elspeth Tassioni has crossed She's over as crossed well, over. and she was one of my favourite characters from The Good Wife. So. Yeah, and it's got the new. Uh, Kush Jumbo who's plays great. Luca, yeah. who's absolutely phenomenal. Yes. So I would recommend that, and uh, maybe we should pick up a few strategies for how to fight um, the populist right wing yes. from it. Absolutely. So that's all we have for this week um, or this episode. Ne- next time we're going to be talking about Me Too. Yeah. Um, because it will be the anniversary of Me Too. It's also going to be the anniversary of this podcast. I think our I first think birthday. So. I got a notification on Twitter recently that I think in the last week that it's a year. I've had my our Twitter account for a year. Ah. Oh. The t- at TNK pod. Um, it's one year old. Excellent. So we must be about a year into our into our podcasting. And that's obviously a Twitter account you should be following if Absolutely. you're not already. Yeah. Um, we have footnotes on our website, which is um, tomorrowneverknowspod.com. Yeah, and you can sign up to them as a tiny letter. Yeah. Which is very exciting when it pops into your inbox <laughs> uh, you can find our podcast wherever you're listening to it right now I always feel quite odd recommending places to find the podcast on to people who have obviously already found the podcast but you know you can download it from all your normal podcast places you'll hear from us soon you'll hear from us soon talking about me too 
Bye. Bye.